0: Well, good afternoon. Did you have a good, healthy lunch today? Yes. I'm delighted to spend a few minutes with you studying the Word of God, studying the ministry of Jesus. And I don't know if we've had prayer yet, but uh, okay, good. Let's, let's have some prayer. Let's have prayer together. Father, we thank you that as we study your Word, that the living Christ speaks to our hearts and draws us closer to him. We pray now as we walk in the footsteps of Jesus. We walk through the Gospels and we see how he ministered to people, how he cared for people, that you would give us those loving, compassionate hearts to be a blessing to others. In Christ's name, amen. How many of you are medical students? You're studying to be physicians, okay? Any dental students? Wonderful, some dental students, okay? How many of you are students uh, of allied health professions? Any allied health professions students? Okay, so most of you are studying either to be physicians, uh, to be dentists, anybody else who's with us? that You're nursing students, okay? Any nursing students? Any PhD students? <laughs> and, and Tim, what's your PhD in? What are you doing Physiology. in it? Physiology, okay. I want to spend a little time with you reflecting on medical missionary work. If I asked you the question, and let's suppose you were doing an oral comprehensive for a PhD. And in the middle of the discussion that you were talking about physiology, Tim, your professor looked up at you and he said, by the way, would you define medical missionary work for me? Anybody in our class this afternoon, give me a one-sentence definition, just one sentence. Medical missionary work is in less than 20 words. Don't count your words. If it's more than 20, you'll be okay. Okay, one-sentence definition of medical missionary work. Tell me what it is. What comes to your mind? Yes?
1: I would say Ellen White's uh, title of her book is The Ministry of Healing.
0: Okay. Medical missionary work is the ministry of healing. Okay. Um, is that a broad enough definition? The ministry of healing. Could a um, Buddhist do a ministry of healing? Could a secular person do a ministry of healing? If you didn't believe in God. What is medical missionary work? Let's let's unpack that definition. I suppose it depends on how you define ministry, doesn't it? Healing, ministry of healing, some other definitions. Yes.
2: It's saving the body and soul for
0: heaven. Medical missionary work is saving the body and soul for heaven. Okay. Okay. Do you charge for it? If you charge, is it medical missionary work? Okay, I'm probing your thinking a little bit. The, is this an important topic? Okay. Medical missionary work is, yes.
1: This is, uh, it is the gospel practice the compassion of Christ revealed, um, Or also, so it has to do with compassion and... Um, uh, yeah, compassion and revealing the gospel in our lives.
0: Okay. Three things have come out. It's a ministry. We've talked about that. It has to do with body and soul. It has to do with compassion. Who else wants to add something? What is medical missionary work? Yes. I say
2: using medical technology and arts to create an opportunity.
0: Okay, okay. So you added technology. So when some people think of medical mission work, they don't think very much about technology, do they? They think more about maybe home remedies or something that, but you would include technology in, in that whole aspect of ministry. Okay? Uh, I, here. I
1: think modeling the, the healing, teaching, preaching
0: ministry of Jesus. Modeling the healing, preaching, teaching ministry of Jesus. Okay. That's kind of an all-encompassing. It gets Don's idea of ministry in. It gets the compassion in. It gets body and soul in. It gets technology in. Okay? Yes? It's very similar. Okay? Anybody else want to add something?
3: And you could also say physical, mental, and spiritual restoration. Or ministering to the healing
0: okay. not of Jesus. When you think of medical missionary work, is that exclusively limited to those who have medical degrees? Yes.
4: I I would sort of, you know, slice words a little bit and try to say medical missionary is for people who are trained in the healthcare professions and uh, health ministry, I would say, is the layman's approach.
0: Okay. So you'd make a distinction between health ministry and medical ministry.
4: Just as a way of uh, using using terms, I I, Mm -hmm. I recognize, I mean, everybody, even if you're a layperson, As we look at spirit prophecy, that would become mm-hmm. I think medical missionary. Mm-hmm. as we work with the church, I think
0: it's helpful to mm-hmm. make a distinction. Okay. Did anybody else want to share something? Okay. Yes. Doctor. It has an integration
3: of the body, the mind, and the heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, I you know, uh, the physical, the mental, and the spiritual. Mm-hmm. I agree with all three, but it integrates
0: Okay. Okay. So there's an integration in medical missionary work. I'd like to spend some time study yes.
4: Uh-huh. You know, like ASI, it's you know it's uh-huh. the marketplace to, to reach people. And this is yet another marketplace. I think I think a true medical missionary work actually changes our practice of, of healthcare. Right?
0: Okay, okay. This is yes,
4: meeting the health needs
0: um, with the attitude of Jesus. Medical missionary work is meeting health needs with the attitudes of Jesus. If we took down every sentence, we would probably have the the beginnings of the first chapter of a good book, wouldn't we? I'd like to study with you for a little while the compassionate ministry of Jesus. And I'd like to introduce it with a classic story of Dr. Lewis Evans. Dr. Evans had a growing practice in the United States. As Dr. Evans' practice grew and exploded, he decided that he wanted to take a mission trip to Korea. He was a committed Christian, not a Seventh-day Adventist, and he learned of a physician friend who was in an out-of-the-way mission station out in, outside of Seoul. So he traveled, flew to Korea, and went out and trekked out in the mountains, the Korean mountains, and came up to this little village and came to this mission station. It just so happened that his surgeon friend was going to do an operation that day on a lady who had some stomach problems and they had a little makeshift operating room it was much like a tent it was a very hot balmy humid korean day and began to work in that operating room and had a couple nurses there and the surgeon actually spent 7 hours operating on this woman's stomach the heat was oppressive the Odors were foul, and it was just a very challenging operation. Complications set in, but the surgeon's steady hands proceeded in the operation. At the end of the operation, the surgeon sewed her up at the end of seven tedious hours, pulled down his mask, took a deep sigh and gasped, and then simply said to um, Dr. Evans, Doc, it's done. She's going to be well. They kind of stumbled back to this doctor's little modest office. And as they were sitting there, Dr. Evans said, Well, I know what I'd get for an operation like that in the States. You know, I'd end up with 15, 20, 25,000 in my pocket for one like that. And uh, what do you get out here for an operation like that? And the learned missionary looked up at him and with tears glistening in his eyes, he said, Well, the first thing I get is this. And he reached down in his desk drawer, and he pulled out an old dented copper coin. And he said, about two weeks ago, this woman came in here and said, Doc, how much is an operation? And her stomach was bloated. And uh, he began to talk to her. and so said, how much do you have? And she said, I had this dented copper coin, Doc. And he said, that's just enough. That's just enough. He said, so the first thing I get is this old dented copper coin. But the second thing I get is the priceless awareness that for seven hours Christ is ministering through these hands to one of his diseased children. That's medical missionary work. The priceless awareness that Jesus is ministering through you to touch the physical, mental, and spiritual needs of his children. When you look at the New Testament, In the Gospel of Matthew, beginning with the fourth chapter in the 19th verse, Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, and to Andrew, Matthew 4, verse 18 and 19, Now Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus said, Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men when we follow Jesus we follow him in the dusty streets of Galilee we see him touching the eyes of the blind and they're opened. we see him touching the ears of the deaf and they're unstopped we see him touching the arm of some withered man and he's healed we see Jesus ministering to the needs of men and women everywhere we see his compassion we see his kindness we see his goodness when you study the New Testament Jesus is other people focused every genuine medical missionary is other person focused there are very few people you meet in the world that are focused on other people most people are focused upon themselves they're focused on the pain they have in their big toe. they're focused on the the itch they have in their back they're focused on the love deficit they have in their heart most people are other are are self-centered you know, somebody said anybody wrapped up in themselves is a very small package. Medical missionaries are other people focus. They shift the attention from their self to the needs of other people. Jesus was a master at that. There are times you find a very short statement in the New Testament that are just pregnant with meaning. These statements are just filled with incredible meaning. In John chapter 1, verse 38, the Bible says that, Peter and Andrew were following Jesus, and Jesus turns and he says to them, what do you seek? I love it. Jesus says to them, what are you seeking? It seems to me that this is Christ's approach to people. He's always not saying to them, this is my agenda. He's looking away from his agenda to theirs. He says, what are you seeking? You know, What are you seeking? Are you embarrassed socially? Can I relieve, alleviate that social embarrassment? What are you seeking? Um, is, do you have, um, have just recovering from a heart attack? How can I help you? What are you seeking? Um, Are you hungry? What are you seeking? So medical missionary work in its broadest sense is other people-centered. It takes the emphasis off who I am and puts it on who they are. It attempts to minister to the needs of other human beings that are broken and crushed and bruised in the world. The emphasis of medical missionary work is not on the degree that I have but the need that they have so medical missionary work shifts from the arrogance of my position to the need of the person I'm ministering to any time you are in a profession today that the going into that profession can be motivated by pride it can be motivated by position or it can be motivated by money And that's what the world knows. The world knows that the higher your education in most instances, the more possibility that you can get ahead. It is a tragedy when the medical healing arts of Jesus are prostituted for my own selfish aggrandizement. Where. The issue becomes my pride because I am a Ph.D. theologian. My pride, which I am not. My pride because I am a physician. My pride because I'm a psychiatrist. My pride because I'm a dentist. The issue is this. The higher my educational level and the more gifts that God has given me, the more obligated I am to be a minister of Jesus and to serve. So medical missionary work in its essence shifts the attention off me and puts it on the needs of the person. It, it is not about the uh, position that I have, neither is it about the power that I have, neither is it about the money that I have. Jesus said, whoever is great among you, let him be your servant. So greatness is illustrated with service. I had a very good illustration of that not long ago I have a friend who's one of the leading gospel singers in America today. She is not a Seventh-day Adventist. My wife and I, through It Is Written Television, got acquainted with her. I don't know of anybody in America today who has a more outstanding voice than this particular woman. She packs stadiums, uh, often sings around the world to groups of twenty to 30,000 people. She is an amazing woman. Um, musicians at times, particularly in the secular world today, um, are not known for their humility. <laughs> Um, you understand what I'm saying known a little bit for their arrogance one day I was traveling with this woman and we got to talking about ministry she made this observation to me I was talking about the program we would participate in together and she said Pastor Mark whatever you need me to do here I want to do and she said in fact I have committed my life to Jesus and if the toilets overflow on this campground that we go just show me where the mop is I was amazed. Here is an incredibly talented musician who meant it when she said it to me. It reminded me of an experience that I had early in my ministry. I was a conference evangelist in the Southern New England Conference, of Seventh-day Adventist, and I was out doing an evangelistic meeting. God taught me humility in a very interesting way. Um, in those years, we had uh, we all the pastors met about a week ahead of time before campground, and it was the one time a year that pastors got exercise. That's why there were so many heart attacks during camp meeting because those guys weren't exercising. You know, they eating all those veggie burgers and all that. I mean, they were great vegetarians. I mean, eating veggie burgers and eggs and cheese and, you know, three pieces of apple pie and two uh, things of uh, ice cream. But they were wonderful vegetarians, you know, those Adventist preachers, you know, 30 pounds overweight, 40 pounds overweight, killing all with heart disease, but they were vegetarians. I mean, I'll do this if it kills me kind of thing. And then we went out and pitched those tents in the hot New England sun. But anyway, that's another story. So came to that camp meeting that day, and uh, I should have been there three days before, but I was out holding an evangelistic meeting came in late. The conference president in that particular um, that particular uh, conference would stand up every morning and read off the assignments. And he would say, okay, you're pitching tents down in the valley. Oh, no, there'd be a big groan because the valley was filled with, it, it was no trees. And if you got the assignment of the valley pitching tents, that was rough because you're at work in the hot sun all day. Oh, you're pitching them up there under the pines. You'd say, praise the Lord. The worst job, the worst job, nobody wanted it, and every year, it was the last thing assigned, and it was signed to the youngest ministerial intern who had just joined the staff. It was going into the bathrooms and cleaning the latrines that were left over from the year before. It was a smelly, stinky, horrible job. Nobody wanted it. I had a little prestige in that conference because I was the conference evangelist. I came in late to the meeting. There was one assignment left. And I walked in and the conference president looked at me and he said, the only job I have left is latrines and you're the only one left, latrines cleaned. And everybody started laughing, everybody. I mean, they were rolling on the floor because Mark Finley was gonna clean latrines. Now I had a friend in that conference. His name was Pastor O.J. Mills. And immediately, Don knows him a little bit, Immediately, he has died now, but a great mentor for both of us. Immediately, when I he was a senior pastor in that conference. Immediately, when I was assigned, he said, I'll switch assignments with somebody. I'll go work with Mark. And Pastor Mills and I spent that day and the next cleaning latrines. We covenanted together that they would be the cleanest latrines of any camp meeting in America. We said, our goal is to make this place the sweetest smelling, the cleanest latrines, Halfway through the first day, wouldn't you know it, it began to rain. We had the driest place. We had theological discussions. Nobody was bothering us. It was the most wonderful two days I ever had of pitching. Those other guys are out there trying to pitch. It's raining, stopping. They're waiting under trees. I learned more about the Bible. We said memory text together, we said spirit of prophecy text together. Medical missionary work is based on the law of humility. It's not based on the law of pride. It's other people-centered. Jesus said in John 1, what are you seeking? He focused on others. Now, if you look at John 2, John 3, John 4, and John 5, you have case histories. The first five chapters in John are case histories of the ministry of Christ John 2 deals with Jesus meeting a social need. John 3 deals with Jesus meeting a spiritual need. John 4 deals with Jesus meeting an emotional need. And John 5 deals with Jesus meeting a physical need. The Gospel of John is structured that way to introduce you to the ministry of Christ. Now let's look at those. John chapter 2. We start on John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding of Cana of Galilee. So remember, we're following this what-seek-you principle. And the mother of Jesus was there. I have heard many Seventh-day Adventists, pastors and others, argue whether the wine of, was fermented in John chapter 2. That misses the entire point. It misses the entire point. Because there is what this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. If you look at the language of John 2 and compare it to the language of John 19 on the cross, it's essentially the same language. Look, in the third day, you remember Jesus constantly said, destroy this body and on the what? Third day. Every time you see an allusion to third day, it's a cross allusion, all through John. John gives you clues, and one of the clues in the Gospel of John is the third day allusion. So every time he says third day, you've got to be thinking not about the immediate experience, but the cross, okay? On the third day, there was a wedding, okay? On the cross, there was a wedding. Justice and mercy kissed one another and Christ was united with his bride, the church, again, okay? And in Cana, Cana means wickedness. So the third day in the center of wickedness, Jesus would produce a wedding, when he hung there on the cross in the context he doesn't hang on the third day but in the context of this third day illusion that speaks about death burial and resurrection of christ jesus hangs there and they pierce his side And what comes out blood and water he changes the water of judaism into the wine of the gospel as his mother stands by the side when the wedding takes place so on the cross jesus is united with his church that is strayed from him and the water and the wine flood out of, flood of his side as he changes the old water of Judaism into the wine of the gospel with his mother present as he works a miracle. See, so this is, this is John's way of pointing you to the cross. So the third day there's a wedding. The mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. They run out of wine. And Jesus says, my hour. Now notice verse 4. This is critical. My hour has not yet what? come now compare that with John 17 look at John 17 and look at John 17 and verse uh, he talks about his hour John 17 verse 1 in John chapter 2 verse 4 he says my hour has not yet come in John 17 verse 1 he says my hour has what come what is he talking about in John 17 2 when he says my hour has come the hour of what They are the cross. You see, so these are allusions in John 2 of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So it has to be unfermented wine. Why? Because the blood of Christ was not ever tainted with the fermentation of sin. So it has to be unfermented wine because it can't be the allusion to the pure blood of Christ if it is indeed sin-laden. Now, but that is not my point. That's all an aside. That's just a sermon. That's an aside. Here's my point. Jesus looked at a wedding feast. He came to a wedding feast. He looked at the host of the wedding feast, and he saw that the host of the wedding feast was incredibly embarrassed. So what did he do? Jesus was so sensitive to social embarrassment, so sensitive to that, that he would not sit by and watch guests go away without having their needs met. Jesus was sensitive to when people were embarrassed. It's the what-seeky principle. What are you seeking? I'm seeking relief. How would you feel if it were your wedding and you ran out of sparkling grape juice and potato salad and veggie burgers and the conference president or your major professor at Loma Linda was next in line and he had just flown in from a very important appointment for four days, traveling, hadn't eaten well and you ran out of veggie burgers and potato salad. Wouldn't you be embarrassed? Now, you ladies appear to me to be oriental background, correct? Our oriental weddings, they're pretty big deals, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And your parents wouldn't be too happy if they ran out of food halfway through, would they? No, 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 I know that culture. I've been there too many times. Wonderful, love it. And, uh, but you see, embarrassment is something none of us want. I have had so many embarrassing experiences in my life because of my public profile and various things. And uh, one of the most embarrassing I ever had was I tried to alleviate somebody else's embarrassment and I got more embarrassed. Did you ever try to do that? I was sitting on the platform with a group of It Is Written partners, 220, 30 partners, some of the top financial people in the Adventist church, and a young lady who I had brought as a guest was to give a talk. She got up to speak and she had drunk too much water. She had been drinking water, drinking water, drinking water. She gave her opening introduction to her talk, walked back to me and said, Pastor, i got to use the ladies' room. Can't go on, and ran off the stage. Now I have 150 people sitting there who walked, watched her run off the stage. She said, I'll be back in five minutes. And I am the host of the meeting, and I'm sitting up there I'm thinking, how can I alleviate her embarrassment? What can I do... Because everybody, nobody, they, they don't know if she's got an emergency. They don't know if she's sick. And I'm sitting there thinking, what can I do to alleviate this girl's embarrassment? I've got to do something. And so I stood up and said, our dear sister, you know, that's a good way to start. You know, you calm all the saints down. Our dear sister was following the doctor's orders and drank a lot of water this morning. Then I said, what did I say? Did I put my foot in my mouth or not? Everybody broke out and started laughing. They knew. <laughs> in life, in life, Jesus always shifted the, the attention from himself to other people. Uh, he always was concerned about what they were concerned about. Nothing in any way, Ellen White says, that concerns your peace bypasses his notice. John, What is medical missionary work? It's unselfishly, lovingly, kindly ministering to the needs of others to represent Jesus' love so that they will be attracted to it too. It's this kindness. It's this compassion. John chapter 2. Jesus meets a physical, uh, Jesus meets a social need. Look at John chapter 3. The need in John chapter 3 is spiritual. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He comes by night. Jesus doesn't offer to multiply wine. Neither does he offer to give him a hot fomentation. Neither does he offer to multiply the little bread that Nicodemus has in his sack to feed him. Nicodemus comes and Jesus detects immediately that there is a spiritual need. And Jesus goes right for the heart spiritually. I believe that many physicians and dentists have great opportunities in their office to minister to spiritual needs. And that we can be sensitive to where people are at. In a recent survey taken by Gallup Poll they discovered that seventy seven percent of americans today wish their physicians or dentists would pray with them seventy seven percent of the people out there that will be walking through your office are wishing that you'd pray with them they're looking for somebody that'll pray with them somebody to be sensitive to their spiritual needs but if you got to see sixty patients a day you understand if you got to see fifty patients a day The 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 temptation is get them through quick. I don't have time to pray with you. Sure, your heart is broken, and sure uh, you didn't sleep for three nights, and sure you just have gone through a divorce, and sure your life is falling apart, and you got headaches and stomach ache, and you came in to get some Prozac from me. You know, uh, it's easier to write the prescription than it is to say, oh, you're talking about your headache, your stomach ache. uh, When when did these violent headaches begin? Oh, they began about six months ago. A spiritual profile. When did they begin? About six months ago. Was there any life-changing event that occurred in your life six months ago? Yeah, there was. Uh, You want to talk to me about it? You want to tell me a little bit about that life-changing event? Well, that's when I found out my husband was, you know, doing this or that or the other thing. You know, or that's when I found out that my, my, my wife was seeing somebody else. Um, what happened when that happened? How, how did that make you feel? What kind of feelings did you through? I, I really went through feelings of grief, and I was so mad and angry. Then I was depressed after that. So you kind of went through this cycle of first denial it couldn't happen, and then you went through the cycle of getting so angry. But then you kind of entered into this depression that you couldn't seem to get out of. Have you processed this at all? Is there anybody that you've talked to about it? Well, I, I can't talk to anybody about it, Doc. I just—it's the first time you've mentioned. It. It's kind of all bottled up inside. Um, then you begin to talk to them about worth and self-esteem and forgiveness, and you spend that three to five minutes—that's so life-changing—or that ten minutes or that fifteen minutes—and then you simply reach out and say, "May I pray with you? Would would it be offensive to you if I prayed with you?" No, Doc. I want you to pray with me, and you pray. The person leaves your office with a bounce in their step, feeling that they've been pointed in the right direction. And why? Because you've ministered to them spiritually. Jesus' principle was, what seek ye? In John 2, it was a social need. In John 3, it was a spiritual need. In John 4, it is an emotional need. John chapter 4 is the woman at the well. Did you ever notice the contrast between John 3 and John 4? In the story of the, uh, John 3, Nicodemus is a man. She is a woman. That's not too profound, is it? Um, John 3, Nicodemus is a Jew. She's a Gentile. Nicodemus is well-respected. She's a woman of ill repute. Nicodemus comes by night. She comes by day. Nicodemus comes seeking Christ. She stumbles across Christ. Nicodemus comes because he wants to find Jesus. She comes in the noon when everybody else draws water in the day because she doesn't want to see Jesus. She doesn't want to see anybody. Christ is on that well. He begins asking questions. He draws her out. He disarms her prejudice immediately. Uh, a. No Jew is going to talk to a Gentile. B. No Jewish teacher is going to talk to a Gentile, uh uh, uh peasant. C, no Jewish teacher who is a rabbi, is going to talk to a Gentile woman who is poor. No man worth his salt is going to talk to a woman like her if he'll repute. Jesus talks to her, reveals to her that she has, six, has had six men, and the man that she's living with is not her husband. But then he talks to her about this water, this water that satisfies the inner thirst, this water that meets your emotional needs, and she cries out, I want this water and she's so charmed with this Christ and so committed to this Christ that she leaves her water pot by the well and runs she brings back to this well a group of Samaritans who accept the gospel and now she herself finds self-esteem and meaning and purpose in life John 1 what are you seeking John 2 um, I'm seeking relief for my emotional needs John 3, I'm seeking relief from my spiritual needs. John 4, I'm seeking relief from my social needs. Uh, Social is John 2, spiritual is John 3, and emotional is John 4. John 5, you look at John 5, and we're going to John 6 because something incredibly amazing happens there. I love John, the fifth chapter. And the reason I like it so much is this we're at the Pool of Bethesda, there's a man there for 38 years. So, Jesus comes to the most hopeless place in Jerusalem. There's no place more hopeless than Bethesda. Now you know beth Esda, you know, every time you read Beth in the Bible, it means house of. Bethlehem Lehem. Lehem is bread, Beth is house of. The house of bread. Jesus, the bread of life, was born in the house of the baker. Beth Seda. Seda is fish, Beth is house of, the house of fish. So Jesus called men to be fishes of men from the fisherman's village. Beth Esda Esda is mercy. Beth is sign of or house of. So Esda is mercy. So Jesus comes in to the most despicable place. People are lying all over the place. They're filled with a sickness, suffering, death. And Jesus comes in there and he comes to the house of, and he makes the place of suffering a house of mercy. That's what medical missionaries do. They make the place of suffering a house of mercy. And that's what Jesus did. He came there and he took the worst case in the worst place in all Jerusalem. And he makes the place of suffering a house of mercy. And uh, he ministers to a physical need. So John 1, what are you seeking? John 2, oh, you're seeking relief from social embarrassment? I'll do that for you. You're seeking the ministry to the spiritual needs of your heart? I'll do that for you. You're seeking a hand to help you uh, when you are emotionally fallen? I'll do that for you. You are seeking relief from physical suffering? I'll do that for you. And what happens? John chapter 6, Jesus multiplies the bread and he feeds 5,000. He has fed so many. So many that the Bible says in John 6, verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself alone. Here's what happened. Up until John 6, Christ had met their needs. But there came a point that he had to do more than that. And this is where I'm moving today. Up until John 6, he had met their social needs, their physical needs, he had met their spiritual needs when they were ready. And he met their emotional needs. But you come to John 6 and there's a transition in Jesus' ministry. He gives the Sermon on the Bread of Life. And in that sermon, he reveals clearly that he's not simply a miracle worker, that that's not his main ministry. He reveals clearly in his Sermon on the Bread of Life that he is not simply a, um, one who has come to meet their physical or psychological or emotional needs. He reveals that the, he, the prime mer- work, Purpose of his ministry is to meet their inner spiritual needs. And probably one of the most significant texts in the Bible is a text that you're going to have to face and I'm going to have to face. John 666. 6, 6. And I believe this 666 6, 6 is as important or maybe more important than the other 666. 6, 6. You know, the other 666 6, 6 is in Revelation. This 666 6, 6 is in John. John chapter 6 verse 66. There are many who do health education, but they do not do health ministry or health evangelism because they do not want the result of 666. Here it is, John 6, verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. When he revealed the true purpose of his ministry, when he revealed his true identity, when he revealed that his purpose wasn't simply to open blind eyes or unstop deaf ears, but that he had a deeper spiritual purpose for the soul, many walked away from it many walked away from it there is many a physician practicing in their office that are in, that in their heart are committed Christians and they're committed Adventists but they are reluctant to share gently and I am not talking about Bible thumpers I'm not talking about taking the Bible like a gluten steak and slamming it down somebody's throat but I'm talking about a, an atmosphere in ministry where we physically mentally spiritually and emotionally minister to people that opens their hearts for the gospel jesus had to make a painful choice will i share the essence of the gospel and will i share the essence of who i am with the risk of losing people indeed he was they walked away if you are working in the office you have that same choice at times you, you struggle in your mind. I don't want to offend somebody. For everyone you don't offend, you fail the opportunity to minister to others. So Jesus was willing at times to take that risk. If you're a health educator, you, you, you're, doing a, you're helping people quit smoking, you're doing a five-day plan, you're doing a CHIP program, you're doing, a, uh, you're doing any program at all. There comes a point where if all you do is minister physically, It's like letting the woman touch the hem of Christ's garment and walking away. So there comes a point in which confidences are built and you begin to build what I call bridges to the soul. Bridges to the soul. Often in the context of practice, and I want this seminar to be very practical, often in the context of medical practice, you can do that, by either asking questions or making some lead statements. And I want to try to give for you a little description of how to build bridges to the soul based on what's going on in the office through a little diagnostic process of questions and answers and how you build bridges to the soul. There are three different ways that I like to teach to build bridges to the soul and that I use in situations that are not overtly spiritual. So the situation that I'm describing is not the context that I come in as a pastor and I'm giving a Bible study in somebody's home, that's a whole different context. The context that we're describing is your office, you're going through a process with somebody and there are three specific different modalities or three different areas that I'm going to tell you about. The first we call the FFF principle. It's the FFF principle. I will describe it. Then we'll go back and try to apply it. It has to do with past, present, and future. Feeling. I understand how you. I can understand how you feel, and we'll describe. We'll illustrate the FFF. I understand how you feel. Others have felt that way before. They have found. So you're using the illustration of another who's found something. So, you are in a situation. A woman has just lost her son, 16 years old, in a car accident. Her life is falling apart. She comes into your office. As she comes into your office, she's a nervous wreck, and her she wants something to calm her nerves. That's why she's there. My daughter and her husband now are in medicine. They are finishing up their... Rotations, or or they're in there in their rotations right now. And I was with them last week. They're out at Kettering, and I said to my daughter and her husband, I said, "Tell me about your first week in family practice, in your rotations." And we sat around the table, eating our healthful blueberry pancakes for breakfast that my daughter made for me. And I said, and we talked about medicine. We talked about the last week, and I said, of all the patients it's Kevin is his name and Debbie is her name. So I said, Kevin, you're working in the south part of the city of Kettering in a family practice and going through that rotation. Debbie, you're in the north going through a family practice there. I want you to tell me what you saw the most of in your family practice rotation last week. They said two things. First, people came in with minor infections. Uh, We saw a lot of colds and all that kind of stuff that fall is just coming but they said sixty or seventy percent they said we don't know if it's traditional this week came in because they had some kind of anxiety nervousness something that was not right they were filled worry tense and all that kind of stuff let's assume that somebody comes in they've just lost a daughter they've just lost a son there's been a car wreck and, and it's been six months a year they're feeling nervous, tense, depressed they sit down with you and you, say, you can sit there and say to them you, 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 be, you go through that little process that I gave you before and you begin to say when did these symptoms first manifest themselves was there any life changing event when they did and then at that point it is very easy to say something like this I, I would put it this way you know I have three children two girls and a boy and they're healthy and well and I can just imagine your pain it's very difficult for me to imagine the pain that you're going through right now because you lost a 16 year old think about when my kids my two girls and my son were teenagers and if I would have lost them at that point it would have been a disaster for me and I can understand why you're having difficult coping so I can I can just faintly imagine I don't I never say to them I understand how you feel because I may have never gone through that experience so I can I can just say I faintly imagine uh, I, can, I can just perceive how you're feeling. You know, others have felt this way too. And uh, you're not alone in the way you feel. Others have felt this way. I've talked to scores of women who have lost a son, like scores of men that have lost a son or a daughter, and, and they've felt, and I might tell a story or two about others that I've worked with. Then I would say to them, many of them have found that as they've probed spiritual values in their life, It's given them a sense of stability and strength. So notice FFF. I understand somewhat how you're feeling. Others have felt this way before. You're not alone and isolated. They have found, and then as we talk about they have found, I might say something like this. They've found that as they probe the spiritual values in life, that they felt a greater peace and a calmness. One of those, may I share with you some of the spiritual values that have helped them? And then I might read a text. They have found that God is a refuge and strength. You know, not long ago I was in, and I want to keep this fairly general, but I was in a South American country, had an unusual experience, very similar to the one I'm telling you now, and it moves me into the second modality. As I flew into the capital city of that country. My host picked me up and said, Pastor Mark, we're going to take you right now to Parliament. We want you to speak at Parliament to um, the President of the Parliament. Went into Parliament, got there, guards standing there. It was a beautiful building just dated back to the 17th, 18th, 17th century. Just gorgeous uh, chandeliers, magnificent carpets on the floor, hand-woven. The the uh, walls were laden with tapestries uh, then there were sections were marbled floors one of the most exquisite buildings of any country i've ever been in my life Got in there sat down talked with the president of the parliament uh, there was a young man sitting next to him 33 years old the youngest uh, senator in the country and as we were walking out after we had that visit and i've done a number of protocol visits for the seventh avenue church and i know what you do i mean you basically you tell them about ADRA, you tell them about your schools, you tell them about your hospitals, you tell them a little bit about the worldwide work and the influence of Seventh-day Adventists. You press a little bit for religious liberty if you need to in that country. So there's a certain format we follow in protocol visits. And so I have been you know, with heads of state and so forth, so I understand it a little bit. So we went through the thing and had the formal pictures taken and so forth and so on. It was all over. I was walking out. The young, um, the young parliamentarian, the young senator, pulled out his cell phone and made a telephone call he was about three steps ahead of me, put his phone back in his pocket and came back and he said to me, the president of our country is visiting China right now and I made a call to, to our White House and talked to our vice president. I mean, you know, you don't just have the vice president of the nation's phone number in your cell phone and push it, you know. Uh, these kind of visits you set up, it takes you weeks and months. And he said, I don't know if you're aware or not, but we're going through a very, very traumatic time right now in our country. Our nurses are on strike. Our hospitals are having major problems. Uh, the farm laborers just went on strike. The vice president of the nation just went through a three days. He's hardly slept. And I just called him and asked if you and I could come by and see him. And he told the guards at the White House to let us in. So we get in this chauffeur limousine, this limousine. And on the way over to the, the in that particular country, it wasn't the United States, but in that particular country, on the way that I'm there, I'm asking every question I can about this to this, um, to this uh, senator. I learned that the vice president of this country is a Jew, and um, so we went to the... uh, We came into the White House, and the guards let us in, so we stayed in a little ante room. The vice president came in, welcomed us into the conference room, and he was scruffy, hadn't shaved her about three or four days. Um, his, uh, he he did not have a tie on, his shirt was opened, he uh, appeared really disheveled, his hair was kind of messed up because he had been up all night, bags under his eyes, and I mean I could just tell that this fellow was just quite disheveled. Now there's one thing you never ever do with a head of state, you never touch them, except shaking hands. You never ever ever touch them. I decided that I was going to sweep aside all protocol and take an incredible risk. As he walked into the room, I walked over and put my hand on his shoulder. That is a no-no. His guards kind of looked. And I said, Sir, Mr. Vice President, I know the last three days have been incredibly difficult for you. Can we sit down and talk about them? He kind of looked at me. I mean, he, I'd never met him before. So we sat down and I said, I'm going right for the heart of this thing. I am going right for the heart. He's a human being. And this man's been up for three days. He needs spiritual ministry. And I said, You know, I've looked at the news and I've seen the strikes. I've seen the conflict. I've seen the very difficult time this country is going through. And I've noticed as well in the papers how you have the highest, utmost respect in this nation. And I just sense that as you have been reaching out to save this country and help others, that there may be a spot in your soul that's tired and weary, and you wonder whether you can go on. And I just wanted to come today and share some things with you. May I share with you today something that a Jewish prophet told a Jewish king and how that Jewish king went through a very similar crisis to you're going through right now, and how a prophet of God came to that Jewish king and gave him hope at the right time. And he simply went like this. He looked up and he said, please, please. I knew we had struck a chord because I had learned that he was a Jew, you see. And so I said, there was a time that there was a great crisis in Israel. Described the crisis. Took out my Bible, read Isaiah 26, verse 3. Thou will keep him in perfect peace. The prophet comes to the king and says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. And I talked about the peace of the God of Israel, the peace that that God could bring. And as we talked, as we discussed, I could see this man was just coming alive. I mean, there was a new energy coming into his life. And reached over then, took his hand and said, Mr. Vice President, may I pray with you? We prayed together in that. At the end of this session, I, we had the formal pictures and so forth, and I left and he said to the senator, would you please stay? So I was a little worried. I went out in the hall, and I said, oh, no, did I go too far? He called the senator over, and the senator came out later, and he said, Mr. Phil, you're not going to believe what happened. The vice president told me, of everything he has been through this last week, this was like an oasis in the desert. He could not believe that you just swept aside everything and came and ministered to his soul. He couldn't believe that, 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 that you looked beyond the formal protocol, that you did not have an agenda to sell to him, but that all you had of interest was his soul. And he said to me, that's what the senator told me, he said to me, I found strength to go on. That was the most important meeting that I had this week. See, when people come into your office... First modality, the FFF principle. I can understand how you feel. Others have felt that way before. They have found. Second modality is this learn something about the person. And both of these go together. You learn something about the person and you find something to hang a spiritual hook on. You find something to hang a spiritual hook on. As you're talking to the person, um, if you discover, for example, that that person has two or three kids. And I might say to a father, are you able to spend a lot of time with your kids? I don't say, do you spend a lot of time with your kids? Because that's a very threatening question. You know, there are two kinds of questions, threatening and non-threatening. A threatening question leaves a person closed, defensive and argumentative. A non-threatening question leaves a person open and responsive and and warm. So if I say to you, do you spend a lot of time with your kids? What's he going to say? What are you, the FBI? Give me a break. That's my personal business. See, so... Uh, so I, I I don't ask that kind of question that puts him in a box. I would rather ask a question like this, John. Uh, you're telling me about your, your boys, uh, uh, John, um, John Jr. and uh, Bobby. And uh, I know you know we're all so busy in our life. Do you, you ever get a, do you get a chance to spend much time with them at all? See, it's a whole different kind of a question. It's a different atmosphere. He opens up on that basis. You know, Mark, I wish I could spend more time with my kids. I'm really kind of feeling guilty about it. I work, work, work. You know, it's so much pressure. You know, I. It's just really hard for me because I'm working. Oh, John, how many hours a week are you working? Mm, Mark, I'm working about 65. Um, do you work on nights? Yeah, I do. I uh, miss a lot of my kids' Little League baseball games because I do that. Mm-hmm. Um, what about weekends? Yeah, I do. Every Saturday i got to work. I mean, I wish I didn't. And then Sundays I'm so wiped out and tired. And, you know, i got to mow the lawn and try to get the place clean. And it's, it's real tough for me. Really, really tough. I, well, you know, John, your problem is not, not unique. Many men face the same problem. And uh, I can kind of understand how you feel. You, you feel guilty about it sometimes, don't you? I really do. And, you know, I think my stomach also maybe maybe you know, because I feel so guilty and because I feel so tense. See, what I'm trying to do with you this afternoon is move your mind from merely looking into your pharmacology textbook You understand what I'm saying? Moving your mind from looking in your pharmacology textbook and saying, how do I give the next medication for this person to a more sensitive approach to looking at the person as a total human being and ministering to them spiritually? I am not suggesting that there is no place for pharmacology. There are places for that study that you have done, and I would not suggest that at all. I would say to you this, though. The Australian Public Health Associ- the Australian Medical Association, the AMA of Australia, has just made a significant shift within the last 12 months, if you are not aware of it. They have given a packet, uh, uh, more than a packet, it's a, it's a little, I'm um, struggling for the word, container. It's a, it's a container of called life speak or life talk and it is a series of prescriptions on lifestyle medicine for Australian physicians as an alternative to some of the drug medication and because the Australian AMA has said we can no longer simply have our physicians become drug dispensers we have to look at the broader aspect of medicine and so the article that I read in the AMA for Australia said that now they have, like for example, if a person has uh, headaches, they're taking a look at, well, what can we do for walking? What can we do for, uh, what, what kind of foods may they be sensitive to? The physicians in Australia are beginning to prescribe exercise. They're beginning to prescribe more sleep. They're beginning to prescribe better diet. They're beginning to prescribe uh, the uh, reduction from tobacco. And so look at yourself as a total medical ministry, missionary for Christ in the kingdom. Three modalities. Number one, the FFF principle. Number two, find a hook to hang something spiritual on. Number four, num- number three, yeah, three comes after two. Um, no, you can tell I'm a little tired. Number three, and that is watch for physical symptoms that may be indicators of a spiritual problem. Watch for physical symptoms that may become an indicator of a, of a deeper problem that is rooted in spirituality. You know, Ellen White makes this statement. Nine tenths of all the diseases that afflict men have their origin in the mind. Now that does not mean in any way that they're imaginary diseases. They are real diseases. But the foundation is a faulty thinking process. It is really heart disease but the foundation of it is a faulty thinking process. You, know, you say, no, the foundation is a high cholesterol diet and the person's 30 pounds overweight. Yeah, but could it be a faulty thinking process uses them to use food to cope with stress? So indeed, it is a food problem, but you can solve the food problem, but you're not solving the fundamental problem, which is the faulty thinking process that led to the food problem, right? You say, well, it's it's stress, that's the pro-. Well, sure, that's a faulty thinking process. You say, well, the problem is cancer. Yes, but... Did the person's immune system get broken down because of stress and anxiety and, and tension? Is, is that really what happened there? So we're looking at this huge picture of life and health, and we're looking at it from a broader perspective. So three modalities. Now, I'm gonna give you a chance. We've been going on for 45 minutes, an hour or so, and you need to ask some questions. Major thesis is this. Here's our thesis. And that is, the practice of Christian Seventh-day Adventist medicine is broader than merely dispensing medications. Pharmacology is a part of medicine, but not all of medicine. Our thesis is that looking at the whole person physically, mentally, and spiritually enhances their health and increases their longevity and their possibility for wellness, So we're looking for signals to minister spiritually so that we can help them physically. So our thesis is that medical missionaries care for others and meet the needs of others more than they care for themselves and attempt to minister in the name of Christ so that others can have the greatest possible life here and in the hereafter. Okay, some questions, some practical questions about dealing with some of these things. Yes? Just
2: a comment. I really agree with what you're saying. You don't want to just heal them physically so that they can continue a life of sin. Sure. You want to reach them physically, uh, spiritually, and get to the root of you know what may be causing that.
0: So. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. You see, I would say this. I would put it this way. The unselfish ministry of Jesus, Jesus ministered to people irrespective of the choices they made after the ministry. So when he healed, for example people who were blind or he did not attach strings to that he he healed them irrespective of their choices but in the process of healing them he had much more to offer them because he wanted to minister to them as you've said for the grace of salvation so my ministry to others and this is where I think there's a very fine line and there are some physicians who say I don't want to have ulterior motives in witnessing to a person, in in ministering to a person. So whether they accept quote-unquote spirituality or religion or not, I'm going to minister to them. That is only half true in my thinking. Here's why. Because if indeed human beings are whole people, if they're physical, mental, and spiritual and emotional people, and I do not... see if I have a chair here And it has four legs, and one is physical, one is mental, one is emotional, and one is spiritual. If I have a leg that's broken, I'm not going to want to sit on this chair very much at all because it's going to come crashing down. It is a good illustration in one way, and it's a poor one in another way. It's a poor one in the sense that the spiritual is not one leg. You know, the spiritual impacts your emotional life, it impacts your physical life and impacts your uh, social life if a person is not whole spiritually my contention is it is likely that in one of the other three areas they're not going to be whole that's my contention I do not believe that it is possible to be whole physically socially and emotionally without having a spiritual wholeness in your life because there, it's an integrated wholeness. How can you be whole emotionally if you don't know how to process your guilt? How can you be whole emotionally if you, don't, if you can't forgive other people? How can you be whole physically if a lack of forgiveness is burning a hole in your stomach? So to me, it's not either or, it's both and. And that's why I really appreciate your comment because I think that that's exactly what you're saying, that you, you need to have this integrated wholeness. The other thing that I have observed And I'll tell you an experience early in my ministry. Early in my ministry, I got involved in what we thought back then was health evangelism. And um, I qualify it. We were doing the best we could. And I'm thankful for a God that accepts you for who you are and you do the best you can. We held, in a three-year period, about 15 or 20 five-day plans to stop smoking. The... Department of Health from the state of Connecticut studied our five-day plans. Dr. Barrett took these few thousand people that we had to three-stop smoking and they touted our statistics. 78% to 82% quit in the five days and it was wonderful until they did a follow-up study that was a year later. They found out that only 24% of our people or 26% were about whatever the percentage was were off. That devastated me and we were doing all that work and our recidivism rate was so amazingly high in those years we were not praying with our people, I mean we were, we were offering them prayer some but we were not we were told in those years when the five day plan to stop smoking came out you can't say anything about the spiritual because you're going to turn people off but we did not provide them with this power for lifestyle change right. we, we didn't provide them for that so here's what my contention is Since human beings are whole, since they're physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally, if you do not provide spiritual modality as a therapy, and I'm not talking about clubbing people over the head with the Bible, I'm not talking about making them Seventh-day Adventists, I'm talking about spiritual modality as a therapy. Once you provide spiritual modality as a therapy, then it opens up to understand what we know as the three angels' message. But there's a step before that. If you do not provide spiritual modality as a therapy for them, you are not you are not adequately providing them help for lifestyle change. Lifestyle change comes in most instances in the tough problems of your life as you probe the spiritual. Okay. Some more questions on this. Yes.
4: The patient load in the outpatient
2: setting is getting heavier every year. Yeah. Appointments every fifteen or twenty minutes. Sometimes it's very difficult deal
0: with
2: all the issues that we deal with. How do you balance time and how can you provide the best care to your patients and then at the same time be there for your
0: family? It's a great question. Let me give you some ideas. And this kind of a class is to stimulate thinking and I'm going to ask others in the class who may have been doing some of this, but I'll pop a couple ideas for you. I think today, particularly the family practice physician, who, I asked my kids this last week how many people they were seeing in the office, and they said on a low day, uh, Debbie, my daughter, said, Dad, on a low day, we see in the clinic that we're in about 40, and uh, on a high day, they'll see on a low day, say, 35 to 40, and on a high day, they'll see up to 60. I mean, you got to put them through quick to do that. It's hard to really minister. Now you've got a lot of issues. Malpractice insurance today is so high, and particularly if you've got medical bills, you know, that are off the charts, and you've got malpractice insurance that's so high, you're trying to get started in a practice. So the question that you ask is a very, very real one. I can imagine how you feel. Others have felt that way before. They have found. <laughs> no, I'm teasing you a little bit. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, um, but. <laughs> But I understand specifically uh, where you're coming from in that, because indeed, that's just the way my mind works, I'm sorry. Uh, But you see, your question is very, very real. It's not a make-believe question at all. It's it's a genuine question. Here are some possibilities for you. One is too radical, but it's a possibility, and then I'm going to give you the less radical ones later. One real radical possibility is look for a place to minister Where the expenses are not that high, live a simpler lifestyle and work at a wellness center. That's a possibility. I mean, you've got to, people have to struggle with that. Am I better off in an inner city, in a city practice, or am I better off in a smaller community where I can practice more lifestyle medicine? It's something you've got to ask. Now, let's assume that you're in a major physician's office and you have that. The suggestions that I would give are this do what you're capable of doing as the patients come through during the day. A short prayer, the sharing of a Bible text. Some of my physician friends, in answer to your question, some of my physician friends who are dealing with that particular question simply have a sign in their waiting room that says something like this. Each of our patients is deeply valued. Here in our practice, each Tuesday evening, we have a a small Bible study group that probes spiritual values. If you're interested, talk to our nurse at the desk. When you see a patient in your office who you think has spiritual interest, you simply say, you know, on Tuesday nights, we meet here in the office and we we probe the spiritual a little more, and I really think it would be helpful to you to do that. Um, There's no charge for it, I'd love to have you come along. So what you then do is you shift into a group setting twenty-thirty people in the office on that Tuesday night, you, you, you budget one night a week to it. Um, we have I know a number of physicians that are doing that. Really, it's, 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 it's a very exciting time for them and a very thrilling time for them. They give one night a week to that kind of ministry. So there's, those are the choices that I see. Some ministry in the office. Um, trying to structure your practice so that it is less costly to run, maybe living a simpler lifestyle, coming to some of those priority decisions on what's really important for you, and particularly um, looking at the possibility of uh, putting a little sign in your office and doing something one night a week and referring people to that. Some other answers to that question, uh, other ways to solve that issue. Don?
1: My uh, brother-in-law is a busy pulmonologist in uh, Hardmore, Oklahoma, and he admits the most hospital patients to the hospital. So his practice is now up to about 1,500, and he's just been there not too long. Mm-hmm. And he sees um, in the clinic all kinds of patients on the clinic days, and uh, he was having that same dilemma that you talked about. And so he hired an office manager who also is a, able to get Bible studies and do these things, and coordinated his staff members so when the patient has a real need, for instance, with pulmonology, as you well know, you, know, you might see that fungating tumor or something, and you get the report back, and you you uh, you tell the patient about it, and he brings in that individual who's been trained and partnering with him. They pray together, and then he says, uh, follow up with uh, with joels, two Joels," and now they're beginning to just see all kinds of throughput. But so I, I think one of the things and one of the things that we'll be trying to do and Amazing Facts when I go there is to begin to train people that can uplift the hands of physicians in busy practices like you have. And I, and I really think if you make that decision to be a spiritual leader in your practice and then you, you minister spiritually to your staff, they can work with you in addressing some of those needs and they're doing it there. You know yes. the other brother that's working with it because you profiled him once
0: as Joel nephew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's not working with my other brother-in-law. And that's, that's what they do to address that need. That's a great opportunity. Let me kind of take off on what Don was saying. Up in Portland, Oregon, a number of years ago, a group of physicians were facing that same need. And I hadn't thought about it, Don, until you mentioned it there. But they were facing that very same need. What they did is these group of physicians got together and hired a nurse slash Bible instructor. So, when they would meet somebody like that in the office, they would say, Here's a person that, say, is a little overweight or a person who is filled with tension and anxiety. They say, Look, I want to call on my nurse. Nurse comes in and they say, I'd like her to follow up. We're not going to charge you anything. We'd like to follow up with seven visits in your home. She's going to show you some of these. And at that time, they were using the health series by Dr. Harding, like water, water, and um, rest, the, the, on the, on the eight, natural, seven, eight natural remedies, like on rest, diet. Etc. And they would just go into the home, show these programs to them. That would lead off into spiritual discussions and uh, just great opportunities. So there are many creative things. Um, we've given you a few that you can do one evening a week in your office, uh, hire a nurse Bible instructor that can come and minister, look for a simpler practice outside of a major city. So a variety of kinds of things. I think the other thing you can do is this, which I think is probably the most important, and that is day by day on your knees. You're saying, God, help me to be sensitive today to the people that you bring to me. Help me to be your man, your woman, to be sensitive so that I can see their hearts and minds and doors open for Christ. Any other uh, questions? Yes, Dr. Elder. I
3: think, addressing that, your issue is a very real one. I hope what I say next is not considered too harsh, but we have to ask, why are we there? Mm-hmm. And if we are in a situation where we cannot meet the spiritual needs, we're not where God wants us. Mm-hmm. I, it's just that simple. Now, my own experience, I'm paid by taxpayers, is that when I have someone to talk to, God has arranged the schedule. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't take a long time, but I take a few minutes, and nice this person's late. Almost inevitably. Huh. So my schedule isn't real. And I need to tell you that the worst experience I've ever had in my practice—it's not a large one. I was seeing this was while I was at Melinda at the in, outpatient clinic, small practice, seeing this lady, and she didn't leave. I only had been in practice a few years. I didn't know how to get rid of people. You, know, you give them the prescription, patient leaves. She didn't go. Forty-five minutes later, she left. Stuck her head in the door and said. Then stuck her head in the door and said. Last night, my daughter committed suicide. <sighs> Forty-five minutes behind.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, if she had known I was interested in her spiritually, it'd been the first thing she said. Mm-hmm. I would have gone to the nurse and said, "Mrs. Jones' daughter committed suicide last night. Can we find a quiet place for her?" Mm-hmm. I will be finished at five fifteen. I will spend time with you. Can you call the chaplain? Right. Right. And where the patient knows you're interested, those issues will come up very quickly. They don't
0: take time. Thank you so much. Voice of experience. Yes? Yeah,
2: to piggyback on what Dr. Elder is saying, I've found that as a resident on the wards, often you will connect with one or two of your patients Uh out of the list of 15, 20 that you have to see. And the Holy Spirit will guide you to those one or two that you're really able to spend that extra time with and connect. And then maybe work in a a busy outpatient. Uh, You might not be able to get into deep issues with 60 patients. But one or two, you may have Yes.
0: yes. Let me let me comment on what you just said. John Wesley would call that prevenient grace. And here's what Wesley said. He said, in every life, God's grace is working. But but God's grace opens the heart of the person so that they will be receptive at a particular time. And what you do as you go through your day, Wesley said, is look for those people where the Holy Spirit is working, so you can be receptive, so, who are receptive that you can spend your time with. And that, that's your point, that if your day, all 60, you're not gonna be able to pray with, or you're not gonna be able to spend a lot of time with. But there's gonna be one or two that God's gonna open their heart and mind, and that's what you're looking for. Question, here. Yeah. Okay, cool question.
2: Christ often went without sleep, mm-hmm. and he had throngs of people mm-hmm. begging for his attention. And as a resident right now, I, I'm in the, you know, in the middle of a residency, and I'm, I'm always just tired. And, and it's um, you know feeling the pressure of seeing throngs of people and a busy mm-hmm. surgical schedule, etc. What do you say to you know, for instance, pastors who need pastoring, and uh, you know, a lot of doctors need uh, that?
0: Uh, what do you say to the fatigued
3: okay. Uh, physician? Okay. Okay.
0: Okay. Question is, and that's a very practical question. What do you go through? First, let me talk about Jesus and his sleep. I've thought a great deal about that. Okay. For thirty years. I want to look at Jesus' life from the standpoint of anatomy and physiology. Okay? You probably haven't done that before. Until this dawned on me, I could not understand Jesus' ministry. Okay? What was Jesus doing for the first 30 years of his life? He was working in a carpenter shop. He was hiking in the woods. He was chopping down those trees. He wasn't drinking. He wasn't smoking. He used no drugs. He... He came to his ministry with a body and a mind that had had 30 years of outdoor life. And his ministry was only three and a half years. You can go without sleep for a short period of time. Look, I'll tell you something. When I, when, at 30 years old, I had all kind of energy. I could go without sleep for all kind of time. But I'm 61 now. If Jesus had a ministry as long as me, he'd be sleeping a lot longer. No, I, I don't say that with Disrespect. But I, I think the principle is is sound. He brought a body of thirty years of actual health, so he wasn't untemperate intemperate because his his need was less because of the shortness of his ministry. But I will guarantee you, if Jesus would have had a thirty or forty year ministry, you'd have said you'd have seen things differently about his lifestyle. It was not intemperate. it was the perfection of temperance because of the fact that it was briefer. It seems to me that it would have been incredibly hard for Jesus to have no home if he would have been here for 30 or 40 years. It would have been incredibly difficult for him, but in the context of his three-and-a-half-year ministry, he was able to pour his entire life into ministry. Now, I've said that to say this. If in your residency program it is for a short period of time, take hope. In other words, you can do some things for a short period of time that you can't do in a long period of time. Ah. And so I think that's one aspect. The other two or three aspects are, and I don't mean to trivialize fatigue at all, I do think that if you go through the studies that I've, I've read on fatigue, indicate that when you've gone through excessive periods of fatigue, you need certainly some periods of rest following those fatigue so it would seem to me that as you look at it as a resident you take three deep breaths and you say this is short but i'll tell you when i get a break i've got to get some sleep because it is going to catch up with you it is it is going to catch up with you there's no question about it the other two aspects of it are there is a quality of spiritual energy that comes you know the isaiah passage they that wait upon the lord shall renew their strength they'll mount up their wings like eagles I think there is a strength in devotional life. And what I would say to any of you who are residents or medical students, and that is whatever you do, don't sacrifice your devotional life. Because there is a physical, mental, spiritual strength there that comes. The other thing is, there is some physical renewal and exercise. I know in my program now, I mean, I just made a round-the-world trip. Here was, this is my schedule. You talk about fatigue. I flew San Diego, to Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. to Germany, Frankfurt, Germany, Frankfurt, Germany to Moscow, Moscow to the Arab Emirates, the Arab Emirates to Singapore, Singapore to Melbourne, Australia, Melbourne, Australia to uh, Los Angeles, Los Angeles to Orlando, then I drove my car 14 hours back in, in 11 days, missed four nights of sleep in 11 days. You can do that at 61 years old only one or two times a year, and then you've got to take your time to go out and I I concentrated when I got home I said okay I gotta concentrate on two things one is sleep and the other is exercise so if you lose it on one end you have to pick it up on the other end so short period of time maintain your devotional life but be sure to get adequate exercise and sleep in the times you can doctor one other thing
3: I totally agree with what you said God will give you patience at that time and that I mean the people Uh who are committed Christians Mm mm-hmm and you say to her, Mrs. Jones, I am so tired today. Will you pray for me? Mrs. Jones will be thrilled. She will pray for you day and night and lift you up.
0: Patients love to pray for their doctors. That is a great thought. I hadn't thought are about that one. They bed and cannot minister. And now you gave them an opportunity to minister. <laughs> yeah. It's fabulous. That's great. That's great. That's a good idea. That's a great idea. Any other comments on that point? Any other questions? What time is this seminar supposed to go to? 30. What time? 10 o'clock tonight. 4.30? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, okay. Yes?
1: Uh, I would just say I was reading a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones who was a doctor before he was a pastor at Westminster Cathedral. And I'll give this to you afterwards. But he has an excellent chapter called The Making or Breaking of a Senior Resident. Okay. <laughs> a study of stress. And in that... He starts with the text, there hath no temptation taken you, but this is common to man. Uh And then he talks about his medical practice, and he talks about the only job in life that has definitely more stress than what you're going through, and it's the mother of seven children.
0: (laughs) Hey, that's great. That's great. Thank you for joining us today in seminar. I hope you've enjoyed as much as I have.